Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of slavery, sexual abuse, occult practices, execution, and torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On March 1, 1692, 17-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard went to visit her uncle. All of a sudden, she began to convulse and moan. She twisted away from invisible jabs and pinches. Eventually, she fell to the floor, writhing in agony. Her uncle and his neighbors could do nothing to help her. They all believed that the teenage girl was bewitched and that her tormentors were, at that very moment, imprisoned in the Salem Village watchhouse. The witches of Salem must be casting terrible spells from afar in retaliation for their capture. Then Elizabeth cried out, There stands Sarah Good upon the table by you. She described the witch, stark naked and invisible to all but Elizabeth, laughing at the girl's misery. At the very same moment, across town, Three guardsmen peered into the makeshift prison cell at the watchhouse, where Sarah Good was held. They found only an empty pair of shoes and stockings. The prisoner had escaped. Later the same night, Sarah Good returned to her jail cell of her own volition. She wouldn't explain where she'd been, but her arm was covered in fresh blood. If there were any skeptics left in Salem Village, the terrifying events of March 1st silenced them. Now, the whole community was united against the grave danger of dark magic. The witches had to be stopped at any cost. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? 
Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Female Criminals, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Last week, we introduced Tituba, Sarah Osborne, and Sarah Good, the first three women to be accused of witchcraft in 17th century Salem Village, Massachusetts. We told you how all three were outsiders in their insular Puritan community, and how the formula of fear plus trigger equals scapegoat set off a witch hunt. This week, We'll take you through the sensational Salem witch trials themselves and attempt to explain why so many people claim to experience bewitchment. We'll also explore where the three women at the center of it all ended up. On March 1st, 1692, Salem town magistrates John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin presided over the initial questioning of the three accused witches. One at a time, Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne were led into the Salem Village meeting house and interrogated. Their four accusers sat inside. Nine-year-old Betty Paris, 11-year-old Abigail Williams, 17-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard, and 12-year-old Anne Putnam Jr., the three defendants weren't represented by any sort of legal counsel. They couldn't call witnesses to testify to their character. Between interrogations, they were held without bail, chained with iron fetters in a single damp room. And their time on the stand wasn't much more comforting. The first to be interrogated was 38-year-old Sarah Good the unfriendly woman known in Salem Village for begging door-to-door and avoiding church services. Although she was still nursing her first daughter, four-year-old Dorcas, Sarah Good was expecting a second child at the time of her arrest. Between her already notorious bad temper, her fear for her life, and the indignity of being arrested while heavily pregnant, Good was in a particularly foul mood. In a sarcastic, angry tone, she denied all of the charges against her. When the magistrates inquired why she hurt the four accusers, Good barked back, I do not hurt them. I scorn it. When asked who had hurt the children, if not her, Good snapped, What do I know? You bring two others here and charge me with it. Each time Good denied the charges, the four young accusers in the gallery moaned and writhed. Good's proclamations of innocence appeared to cause them physical pain. Seeing this, the magistrates pressed on. They asked the same questions over and over, demanding to know who was hurting the children. 
Under this unrelenting pressure, Good eventually threw Sarah Osborne under the bus. Perhaps Good chose to implicate her fellow defendant because the 49-year-old Osborne's children were already adults and no longer needed her. Maybe Good thought that if anyone had to die, it might as well be the woman who'd lived a full life already, at least by 17th century colonial standards. But if Good thought her accusers would be satisfied to convict one witch, she was wrong. All four girls in the gallery sat up straight and proclaimed loudly that Good and Osborne practiced witchcraft together. The magistrates ordered Sarah Good held for trial. As the accused witch was led back to prison, her alleged victims seemed to find some relief. For a short time, the girls' fits and hallucinations ceased. It was the first respite Betty and Abigail had felt in weeks since they'd fallen ill with the mysterious disease. Anne and Elizabeth had become sick later, only after news of the illness had already circulated. But all their symptoms were quite pronounced by the time the questioning started and worsening every day. Frequent seizures, hallucinations, and sensations of itching and pinching plagued all four girls. They spoke in tongues and claimed that they could see frightening creatures. They said the witches wanted them to sign a book belonging to the devil. If they wrote their names down, they too would become witches, forced to serve Satan for eternity. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Betty, Abigail, Elizabeth, and Anne were possibly experiencing symptoms of ergotism, a disorder caused by ingesting the ergot fungus that grows on rye exposed to dampness. Because they were children, it would have taken a smaller dose of ergot for them to feel the effects, which is likely why none of the adults in their household reported symptoms. But immediately after the interrogation started, healthy adults also began hallucinating. That same day, two villagers, William Allen and John Hughes, saw a strange beast crouched on the ground in front of them. When they approached the creature, it broke apart and transformed into three women who fled on foot. To understand these seemingly contagious hallucinations, we first need to know a little more about Puritanism. The people of Salem Village believed the earthly world was a battleground between good and evil. There were only two causes for human suffering, sin and Satan. Most of the time, Puritans chalked their misfortunes up to their own moral failings. They often reacted to tragedy by writing out long lists of their sins. But when faced with so much suffering that they could not picture God inflicting it, Puritans turned to the second explanation, the devil. They believed he had earthly servants in the form of witches and imps. To the Puritans, these beliefs were not theories or doctrines. They were facts. Symptoms of bewitchment were as real and concerning to Puritans as symptoms of cancer are to modern people. And the harder life got in Puritan communities, the more cases of bewitchment tended to crop up. The winter of the Salem witch trials was particularly grim. In 1692, 
Salem Village was overwhelmed by an influx of refugees from nearby communities destroyed in King William's War. Simultaneously, extreme cold destroyed crops and forced families to go hungry. The period from 1680 to 1730 has since been identified as the coldest part of a Little Ice Age, which lasted from the 14th to the 18th centuries. These harsh environmental, social, and economic conditions perfectly set the stage for a phenomenon known as mass conversion disorder. This condition is characterized by the conversion of psychological stressors into bodily symptoms. Based on historical records, the affliction of witchcraft spreading like wildfire through Salem Village was genuine. The people who believed themselves to be bewitched weren't faking their convulsions. They were truly suffering. In cases of mass conversion disorder, patients are invariably under intense stress. The condition appears first in one or two individuals, then spreads rapidly to peers. Even if the four young girls who first claimed bewitchment were indeed suffering from ergotism, their symptoms were probably transmitted to their peers psychologically rather than physically. One could compare the rapidly spreading bewitchments to a form of accidental hypnosis. Today, we can call in psychologists when strange symptoms with no medical explanation appear. But in 1692, the people of Salem turned to the only thing they felt they could count on, their faith, and they turned against those that didn't adhere to their restrictive religion. Women like 49-year-old Sarah Osborne. She defied convention years earlier by marrying her younger Irish farmhand, Alexander Osborne, shortly after her first husband's death. She was no obedient, pious wife. And to the Puritans, if you weren't an instrument of God, you were a tool of the devil. Sarah Osborne's questioning began on March 1, 1692, immediately after Sarah Goods concluded. She'd been sick in bed for some time before her arrest and answered the magistrate's questions in a weak, frail voice. Osborne denied the charges of witchcraft, citing her long illness. She was far too sick to be gallivanting around the village, flying on poles and pinching little girls. In fact, she pointed out, she might well be a victim of witchcraft herself. Alexander Osborne testified that his wife had been too sick to leave home for several months before her arrest. Three others, whose names were not recorded, also testified on her behalf. In the end, Osborne's best defense was also the strongest evidence against her. Since the start of her illness 14 months prior, she hadn't attended Sabbath services at the meeting house. This sounded suspicious to the highly religious magistrates. In her time away from God, she must have aligned herself with the devil. They ordered Sarah Osborne held for trial. As Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne returned to their jail cells, they knew that their lives hung in the balance. The people of Salem Village believed that nothing could protect them from total annihilation at the hands of witches. Unless, of course, they annihilated the witches first.
Coming up, a shocking confession with deadly consequences. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. On March 1st, 1692, the Salem witch trials began with the interrogations of 38-year-old Sarah Good and 49-year-old Sarah Osborne, Although Good and Osborne both flatly denied the accusations of witchcraft, they were both held for trial. Then it was 30-year-old Tichuba's turn to face the magistrates. Tichuba had spent more than half her life enslaved and more than a decade living in Massachusetts. She hadn't seen another person of her own ethnicity since her late teens. Her husband, John Indian, was chosen for her by her enslavers. She was forced to care for the three white children in her household, Betty, Abigail, and Thomas, before she tended to her own daughter, Violet. Unlike the other women, Tituba attended church every week. She was forced to live with the reverend, so it behooved her to faithfully practice Puritanism. She prayed loudly so that all could hear her, She avoided sin scrupulously, with the singular exception of baking a witch cake in an effort to cure nine-year-old Betty and 11-year-old Abigail. When she entered the courtroom, Tituba's eyes were downcast. She wasn't defiant like the two Sarahs. Yet as the magistrates began to question her, Tituba denied any knowledge of witchcraft. In a quiet, strong voice, She insisted she had no involvement with evil spirits, and she didn't know who'd hurt the girls. In the galley, Reverend Paris glowered. Simultaneously, the four afflicted girls resumed convulsing and howling in pain, just as they had when Good and Osborne denied the charges against them. Tituba knew what was expected of her. She was supposed to be the star witness in the case— The night before, the reverend ordered her to confess to witchcraft. If she didn't, she would probably be convicted anyway and severely beaten by her enslaver. If she confessed, at least she'd be back in Paris's good graces. Tituba met his eyes again. He might not be on good terms with the village council, but his power as the community's reverend was still sufficient to allow him to visit Tituba in jail whenever he desired. He could beat and torture her if she refused to confess, and nobody would say a word. Magistrate Hathorne asked again who had hurt the children. Paris leaned forward in his chair. With a heavy heart, Tituba replied, The devil, for aught I know. She told the magistrates that a man with white hair had visited her and ordered her to serve him. He'd threatened to kill the children if she refused. This was what everyone had been waiting for. The meeting house fell silent. Even the four sick girls stopped writhing and complaining of pain. They settled back in their seats, 
slumping as if Tituba's confession had cut their marionette strings. The magistrates demanded more details. Tituba eagerly obliged. Now that she'd made the decision to confess, the rest came easily. She explained how the man sometimes visited her in the shape of a dog. She described the gifts he offered her to entice her to serve him. She told the court that Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne had traveled in spectral form to hurt the children every night, accompanied by two women from Boston. They were very strong and dragged Tituba along with them. They forced her to pinch the girls. She told the court that if she declined to hurt the children, a gang of spectral cats threatened her. Tituba's confession was striking, but peppered with uncertainty. Over and over, she ended sentences with, I think, and waited for the magistrate's next question to tell her whether or not her guess was correct. Asked to describe the devil's human form, she said, a man with white hair, I think. But if any of the onlookers noticed that Tituba appeared to be telling the magistrates whatever they wanted to hear, nobody said a word. Of course, it was what they wanted to hear, too. Though the Puritan religion didn't include a formal confession ritual, they still greatly valued the disclosure of sins, followed by reconciliation. A parishioner who'd sinned against the community often wrote an apology letter and pinned it to a public message board in the meeting house. Generally, one who confessed was swiftly forgiven. Even a contrite sinner claiming to have practiced magic under duress might someday be forgiven. But someone who outright denied being a witch, without any sign of remorse, was just too dangerous to ever absolve. It's remarkable that Tituba was the only one of the first three accused witches to realize this. Perhaps it was because she was the last to be questioned, or because Reverend Paris had demanded her confession. But she was also the only accused witch who'd ever observed the Puritan religion from an outside perspective. She alone had the ability to truly see the ironies and contradictions in their theology. Viewing Tituba's remarkable confession in this light shows it for what it truly was. Not capitulation, but an act of defiance. She couldn't free herself. She couldn't stop the witch hunt. She couldn't return to her homeland or her people. But she could psychologically manipulate her jailers and perhaps in the process, save herself from the gallows. Tituba's confession continued for hours. During her testimony, the girls suffered more seizures, but the magistrates were now so convinced of Tituba's honesty that they looked to her for answers rather than to the victims. Who was hurting the girls? Tituba cried out that Sarah Good was present in spectral form and was tormenting the girls. And as soon as this accusation left her lips, Tituba clapped her hands over her eyes and howled, I am blind now. I cannot see. She started convulsing just like the victims. Everyone in the courtroom took this as proof that Good and Osborne were torturing Tituba in retaliation for her testimony. She transformed from perpetrator to victim. 
It was, perhaps, the closest thing to real magic that Tituba ever performed. But this performance wasn't enough to convince the authorities to let Tituba go. This initial hearing was only meant to determine which of the women should be held for trial. And since Tituba had confessed, of course, she must be tried. Tituba and Sarah Osborne were sent to Salem Jail in nearby Salem Town. It was lucky for Tituba that Sarah Osborne was ill and couldn't physically retaliate against her for throwing her under the bus. Another stroke of good luck? Sarah Good was sent to the home of Constable Joseph Herrick, one of her distant relatives. Her pregnancy was far enough along that Good was sure to give birth in custody. The authorities determined that Given her condition, she should be confined privately. Tituba and Sarah Osborne spent the night staring daggers at each other across a musty, dark jail cell. Sarah Good laid awake, wondering if her baby could survive without her if she was put to death. When her jailers dozed off, she crept out of her room barefoot and ran away. She soon found herself out of breath as she tried to escape with no shoes and a heavily pregnant belly. She'd already somehow scraped her arm bloody, perhaps by tripping on the rough road. After a few minutes, Good decided that the dangers outside of prison outweighed the risk of execution. Even if she somehow made it out of the village alive, she might be killed by the indigenous tribes currently at war with English and French colonists. She might die of exposure in a late winter blizzard. She might be discovered by a villager and beaten to death. Sarah Good, escaped witch, turned around and went back to jail, defeated. There was nothing to do but face the music. At least if she went back to Constable Herrick's farm now, her child might have a chance. Even Salem Village wasn't cruel enough to hang a pregnant woman. The wounded Sarah Good returned to jail of her own volition. She thought she was sacrificing herself to carry her pregnancy to term. Little did she know that the child she needed to worry most about was her four-year-old daughter, Dorcas. The very next day, on March 2nd, 12-year-old Anne Putnam Jr. claimed that Dorcas was a witch and had visited Anne in spectral form to force her to sign the Devil's Book. When young Anne refused, she said, the tiny hellion bit and choked her. As proof, Anne showed child-sized bite marks on her arm. Tituba also showed the magistrate several fresh wounds, which she attributed to the devil visiting and torturing her overnight. The devil she was talking about was Reverend Samuel Paris, who had again beaten her in her cell. But the magistrates took this as evidence that Tituba was being punished by Satan for turning on her fellow witches. In the days that followed, the other young victims only got worse. On March 6, 1692, 12-year-old Anne Putnam Jr. said she'd experienced spectral torture at the hands of Elizabeth Proctor, a wealthy housewife in Salem Village. Elizabeth's husband, John Proctor, was a well-off landowner with a lucrative business selling alcohol. He was quite the catch, as Puritan husbands go. 
Sure, he had a drinking problem and was known to beat his maidservant, but he provided his wife with a lifestyle that many in the village envied. Historian John Putnam Demos, a descendant of the Salem Putnams, theorized that anxiety about marrying well played a role in the behaviors of the adolescent accusers in the Salem witch trials. He notes that most warrants were signed by girls coming into their eligible years, and the implicated witches were primarily married women or other unbetrothed girls, a.k.a. the competition. In Salem Village, women were defined entirely by their husbands. A girl who never wed was destined to toil as a domestic laborer. A married woman, on the other hand, received the respectful title of good wife and was treated with deference by her single peers. Remember, repressive social environments and extreme stress are the typical triggers for mass conversion disorder. In Salem Village, the very most repressed and stressed members of the community were adolescent girls. If the young accusers were suffering from mass conversion disorder, it makes sense that their imagined tormentors were their romantic competitors. When they first accused Osborne, Good, and Tituba, Betty and Abigail were probably just telling grown-ups what they wanted to hear. But when the teens saw how rapidly adults acted on their accusations, that all changed. They began competing with one another to tell the biggest, most sensational tales of witchcraft. It was as if the girls didn't care at all who got hurt, as long as they remained the center of attention. Psychologists say that teens overwhelmed by their own feelings may behave as if they're incapable of empathy. In reality, they're consciously hardening themselves to avoid vulnerability. And as they act in their own self-interest, others face the consequences. In Salem, this was a recipe for disaster. It was an apocalyptic battle between good and evil, and the Puritans of Salem were prepared to do anything to win, even if it meant killing children and the elderly. No price was too high to eradicate witchcraft. Coming up, the accusations spread, and Salem hangs its first witches. Now back to the story. In March of 1692, 38-year-old Sarah Good, 49-year-old Sarah Osborne, and 30-year-old Tituba were held on trial in rural Salem Village for suspected witchcraft. Only Tituba confessed and was thereafter looked upon somewhat more kindly by the other villagers. The other two women continued to insist they were innocent, but outside the bars of Salem Town Jail, the outbreak of bewitchment was accelerating dramatically. More and more visions of witches were reported. Almost every day, new names were added to the list of the accused. On March 11th, Reverend Paris observed a day of fasting and prayer at his home. He invited ministers from neighboring towns to join him in beseeching God to free his girls from the influence of witchcraft. Apparently, the reverend's prayers led him to at least one divine revelation. Shortly after the day of fasting, he sent his nine-year-old daughter, Betty, to live with relatives in nearby Salem town. 
There she began to recover from her illness, possibly because she was no longer eating spoiled rye and dosing herself with ergot. Twelve-year-old Anne Putnam Jr., on the other hand, was seeing more and more horrifying visions. The hallucination spread to the girl's mother, also named Anne Putnam, and then to the Putnam's maid, Mercy Lewis. Anne's poor father spent his days dashing back and forth to the Salem Town Courthouse so that all the women of his household could formally accuse their spectral tormentors. Bewitchment spread like a physical contagion, and whenever a new person was added to the list of alleged witches, multiple accusers came forward to affirm that they, too, had been tormented by her. The outbreak spread all the way to Ipswich, 15 miles north, where a young girl opened her door, saw a terrifying beast, and fainted so thoroughly that for several hours her own family thought she was dead. By the end of March, even four-year-old Dorcas Good was jailed for witchcraft. So was 71-year-old arthritic Rebecca Nurse. Neither of them was even capable of going to the market unassisted. Yet they stood accused of transforming into great, powerful beasts to torture and terrify the village. And they were only two of a growing number of accused witches. The situation in Salem was becoming so bizarre that it would have been humorous if it weren't so tragic. All those who weren't already under arrest were throwing themselves on the ground in dramatic fits, exclaiming about witches. One woman, Elizabeth Carey, attended another witch's questioning as a spectator. By the end of the hearing, Carey found herself accused and arrested. By this point, even the villagers who didn't believe the accusations had begun to use the witch hunt as an excuse to get rid of business competitors or romantic rivals. The tiny village could hardly keep track of all the accusations, much less interrogate the scores of witches, hold them in prison, and eventually try them. The magistrates and the village council held anxious, private discussions about how to get a proper court convened in town. On April 4th, they decided that the cases were far too serious to handle without consultation with the state government in Boston. Regrettably, the Massachusetts governor was in England petitioning the king— until he returned, they couldn't move forward. But the tiny Salem town jail was quite full. Salem Village began forwarding some of their witches to Boston jail. And the accused were forced to languish in their cells, waiting for their trial. On May 10th, Sarah Osborne succumbed to her long illness. She continued to proclaim innocence until her death. Although she wasn't executed, Sarah Osborne could be considered the first victim of the Salem witch trials. Instead of dying at home with the younger husband who doted on her, she expired on the mildewed floorboards of a tiny, overcrowded jailhouse, believed by her community to be an accomplice of Satan. Weeks later, in late May, there were so many people in jail that the local government had to borrow money from a private citizen, Samuel Sewell, to purchase more shackles for accused witches. Finally, on May 27th, 
Massachusetts Governor William Phipps stepped in. He appointed several new judges and ordered a court of Oyer and Terminer, or Hear and Decide, to try all of the pending cases. Led by Chief Justice William Stoughton, the court met with the local magistrates and constables to determine in what order to try the witches. Following the legal theory of the time, they decided that the most obvious cases of witchcraft should go to trial first. So prosecutors began looking over records of the preliminary interrogations to determine who among the arrestees was likely a witch. Of course, Sarah Good was among them. She'd been accused early, nobody liked her, and her defiant behavior in court had gotten a dramatic reaction from her accusers. Around this time, Good gave birth in custody. Her infant daughter, named Mercy, was born sick and soon died. Nobody bothered to record the exact date of either her birth or death. But there was at least a glimmer of brightness for the bereaved mother. She wouldn't be the first to have her day in court. That dubious honor went to 60-year-old Bridget Bishop. The authorities felt she'd be the easiest to convict, owing to a previous accusation of witchcraft. She was also known to brawl physically with her husband, giving as good as she got, and the court was determined to find even more evidence of her obvious guilt. On June 2nd, nine jury members and a doctor were escorted to the Salem Town Jail to inspect the naked bodies of Bridget Bishop, Sarah Good, Alice Parker, Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Proctor, and Susanna Martin, for marks consistent with occult activities. The women's genitals were closely examined. Any abnormalities were carefully documented. One of the jury members was a midwife. She repeatedly spoke up to tell the rest of the jury that female genitals naturally varied in appearance, especially among women who had given birth vaginally. Unfortunately, the midwife was overruled by the other jurors, as was typical of Salem at that time, they trusted a man's opinion over that of a woman who delivered babies for a living. The jury and doctor ultimately agreed that several of the women had an odd excrescence of flesh on their genitals. They assumed it was a divine punishment for witchcraft. On June 2, 1692, the community gathered en masse to see Bridget Bishop face justice. The court decided to allow spectral evidence in the hearing, or things done by witches in spectral form. This meant that all of the accusers' self-reported visions would be treated as fact, even though there was absolutely no physical evidence to support them. During the proceedings, Sarah Good and Tichuba languished in their shared jail cell. They waited anxiously for updates on Bridget's trial. All the accused women realized a conviction was likely, but they hoped for leniency in sentencing. If the first witch was convicted, it would be easier to hang the others. They didn't have to wait long for the news. Bridget Bishop was found guilty the same day her trial began, June 2nd, 1692. She was sentenced to die by hanging. On June 10th, 
60-year-old Bridget Bishop was executed. She was transported to a local pasture and hanged from a tree growing from a rocky ledge. Even as the men placed a noose around her neck, Bridget defended her innocence. Her words were in vain. The ladder was swiftly kicked away, and Bridget was left to twist in the wind. The minister observing her execution refused even to pray for her soul, saying she was damned already. Bridget's death only piqued the town's bloodlust. On June 28th, Sarah Good was presented for her trial. She was in rough shape after nearly four months in jail and losing her infant daughter. Her four-year-old, Dorcas, remained in jail awaiting her own trial for witchcraft. Sarah Good never had much in life, and what little she'd earned had been taken from her. She now had no more cause for joy and little will to live. This is consistent with the findings of psychiatrists Brendan D. Kelly and Sharon R. Foley, who wrote that prisoners on death row suffer from extreme stress, fatalism, and poor mental health. Although Good hadn't been sentenced yet, a death penalty conviction seemed guaranteed. During Good's trial, an unnamed witness proclaimed that Sarah Good had cut her with a knife. As proof, the witness presented a broken-off knife point, supposedly from the witch's weapon. Then a young man in the gallery rose and stated to the court that he owned and had damaged this knife. As proof, he brought forth the rest of the blade. But his courage did nothing for Sarah Good. The judge didn't even bar the lying accuser from giving further testimony, but only admonished her to tell the truth. Given this lax attitude towards evidence, it should surprise no one that Sarah Good was quickly convicted of witchcraft and sentenced to die. This time, the court decided to be more efficient. They sent Sarah Good back to jail until a few more witches could be sentenced, so as to hang them all at once. Finally, on July 19th, the execution day arrived. Sarah Good was removed from her cell, along with four fellow convicts, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds. The five supposed witches were placed in a cart and driven through town, followed by a parade of eager spectators. The women were taken to the Atlantic shore, on the outskirts of Salem Village, the constables had already picked out a rocky ledge above a tidal pool, where a convenient outcropping of rock made it easy to hang five nooses. The observers included another Puritan reverend, Nicholas Noyes, who beseeched 39-year-old Sarah Good to confess before her execution. He told her, at least you will not die a liar if you confess. He'd picked the wrong woman to ply his ministerial trade upon, Sarah Good spat in his face as she defiantly replied, I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Apparently, the curse did not frighten the reverend, because Sarah Good was hanged as planned. So were the four other witches. As the women were dragged to the makeshift gallows, 
Each one proclaimed her innocence with her last breaths. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of Salem was that only by lying could anyone hope for mercy. Those like Tichuba, who made false confessions and apologized, were rewarded with leniency. And yet, no true Puritan could bring herself to lie about something as serious as witchcraft. Most of the accused witches would rather die than admit to serving the devil. The trials continued through the summer of 1692, but the pace of new accusations slowed to a trickle by fall. On September 22nd, eight people were hanged in what would be the final executions of the Salem witch trials. Like all epidemics eventually do, the bewitchment outbreak ran its course. By now, Salem Village had finished eating 1691's ergot-infested rye crop. On October 2, 1692, Increase Mather, a powerful Puritan minister, wrote a letter to the court against the witch trials. He insisted that, It is better that ten suspected witches escape than that one innocent person be hanged. Ten days later, on October 12th, Governor Phipps ordered Salem Village to stop executing witches and suspended new witchcraft arrests. The governor was influenced both by Reverend Mather's impassioned letter and by an unfounded accusation against his own wife. A few weeks after that, on October 29th, Phipps dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer entirely. By the end of the trials, more than 200 people had been accused, and over 140 were arrested and held in jail. In all, at least 21 people died, 19 who were executed, plus Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good's newborn daughter, Mercy. Two dogs were also shot on suspicion of witchcraft. Tituba remained in jail, but was never indicted. It wasn't much different from her life in the Paris household. She had a little less variety and no longer went to church, but she'd been a prisoner since early childhood. As she languished behind bars, Tichuba recanted her dramatic confession. She also spoke to writer Robert Califf, who was working on a book called More Wonders of the Invisible World. The text harshly criticized the Salem witch trials. Tichuba told Caliph that Reverend Paris had beaten and abused her throughout her time with him and had forced her to confess to witchcraft. She stated bluntly that everything she'd said in court was a result of this abuse. In May of 1693, Governor Phipps pardoned all the remaining prisoners, including Tichuba. She was free to go, just as soon as she paid for the so-called room and board she'd received in jail. As an enslaved person, Tichuba had no money and could not pay. Reverend Paris refused to cover her fees, possibly in retaliation for her interview. Instead, Paris sold Tichuba to an unknown party for the price of her jail fees. Her husband, John Indian, was likely sold along with her. Sadly, Tichuba's only child, Violet, remained with Reverend Paris for the rest of her life. Of the initial four accusers, 
only Anne Putnam Jr. ever apologized for her actions. In 1706, 26-year-old Anne stood up in church and called her accusations of witchcraft a great delusion of Satan. As for the Reverend Noyes, who urged Sarah Good to confess on the gallows, to which she replied, If you take my life away, God will give you blood to drink. Twenty-five years later, on December 13, 1717, he died choking on his own blood after a hemorrhage. It's easy to look back and blame the horrors of the Salem witch trials on an ignorant, old-fashioned religion. But even in the modern world, frightened, suffering people often blame scapegoats who don't abide by social norms. Our cultural context has changed, but human nature hasn't. If we are to prevent modern-day witch hunts from happening, we'll have to find better ways of coping with fear and accepting the marginalized. Perhaps we can look to one of the good parts of Puritanism, self-reflection. In the years after the Salem witch trials, the people of Salem reflected on what went wrong and did their best to prevent it from happening again. They compensated families of victims, fired Reverend Paris, and gathered to pray for forgiveness. Of course, none of this brought back the 21 innocent people who died. But it did clear the path for healing. In modern-day Salem, descendants of accused witches live peacefully alongside those of witch hunters. And by living together in reconciliation, they can help the world recover from the crimes of their ancestors. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on the Salem Witch Trials, amongst the many sources we used, we found Marilyn K. Roach's book, The Salem Witch Trials, a day-by-day chronicle of a community under siege, especially helpful. We'd also like to give a special thanks to the Salem Witch Trials Documentary Archive and Transcription Project, a free and public archive of original, contemporary documents related to the Salem Witch Trials. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Yelena War and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.